Lumos. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Man with Two Faces. So for our last episode this season, I will be giving you a brief synopsis of the chapter. Harry encounters a calm, cold, non-stuttering Quirrell in the final room, along with the mirror of Erised. Quirrell reveals that he has been trying to steal the stone all year, not Snape, and confesses to trying to kill Harry multiple times earlier in the book when Harry thought it was Snape, and that Snape had been trying to save Harry's life. Quirrell intends to steal the stone for Voldemort, but when Harry looks into the mirror, the stone drops into his real-life pocket. Quirrell then unwraps his turban and reveals Voldemort's face on the back of his head, who taunts Harry about his parents' deaths. Voldemort is able to tell that Harry has the stone, and orders Quirrell to attack him. They struggle, and Harry realizes that the touch of his bare skin burns Quirrell. He manages to hold Quirrell off of the stone for a minute before he eventually passes out from the pain in his scar, and wakes up in the hospital wing with Dumbledore above him. Dumbledore says that he had already been on his way back to Hogwarts and had gotten there in time to save Harry, and that the stone has been destroyed. Harry asks why Voldemort attempted to kill him in the first place, and Dumbledore declines to tell him, but does tell him that it was his mother's love that protected him from Quirrell. Hermione and Ron visit, and then Hagrid visits and gives Harry a photo album with pictures of his parents in it. At the final feast, Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Neville are all awarded points for Gryffindor, stealing the house cup from Slytherin at the eleventh hour. The year ends, and Harry goes home for the summer with the Dursleys, feeling proud of himself and optimistic about his future. So why don't we start by talking about, in my opinion, maybe the best moment of this chapter, the encounter between Harry and Quirrell slash Voldemort. Sure. So in this encounter, Quirrell's character is finally revealed. We can talk about him and think, you know, is he a realistic villain? So first of all, we find out that he was behind the troll on Halloween, mm-hmm. as we said before, and Harry's broom trouble at the Quidditch match. Um, Hermione actually saved Harry's life by chance because she knocked Quirrell over when she was trying to interrupt Snape, who was actually muttering the counter curse. Right. So we've talked about that before, but just to clarify, that's what was happening. So when thinking about Quirrell as a villain, we know that he was actually kind of just a regular wizard. Um, he was kind of roaming around... Um, researching various dark creatures. Yeah, Hagrid makes reference to the fact that he was a really brilliant young wizard before Mm -hmm. he went and sort of became broken by all these dark creatures that he encountered, or at least that's the story that he tells people. Right, and so we know that at some point um, he's in Albania, he's looking for Voldemort, or he hears about Voldemort, and he ends up meeting what Voldemort is at this point. Which is like a spirit, sort of. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the forest somewhere. And so he kind of gets entranced by Voldemort's worldview and his sort of mini cults that he created with kind of like Quirrell is like a new Death Eater that he's sort of trying to convert here because he's the only one that will listen to him at this point. Mm -hmm. So there's a quote that Quirrell says, um, kind of paraphrasing Voldemort's philosophy, which is, There is no good or evil, there is only power, and those too weak to seek it. Mm. So I think this is pretty interesting in terms of, you know, Voldemort's lack of morality in general, which we obviously know 
but he truly believes that it does not matter what he does. All, everything, you know, the ends justify the means, whatever he can do to gain power over the wizarding world. Um, and and in his pursuit of immortality, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like, it doesn't matter to him who he has to kill or what he has to do to get to that goal. It's just the goal. And, and I think, yeah, you hit on something really powerful there. It's like, that's his whole philosophy. And to a lesser extent, the Death Eaters. And I think at one point... Maybe it's in this book, maybe it's in another book, but the Sorting Hat even sort of mentions that Slytherin House is full of people who would who would do use any means to achieve their end. And so it's sort of like the whole house is like that too. So that's kind of the backstory of Quirrell's conversion to Voldemort's ways. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that we know that Harry is biased throughout this book and believes that Snape is the one doing all the stuff that Quirrell's actually doing. And Snape is very you know, unpopular and looks evil and is Slytherin, (laughs) head of a Slytherin house. He's, it's very easy to kind of scapegoat Snape as being the one that's obviously doing all the evil things. And so Quirrell kind of knows this and uses Snape as a scapegoat because um, he knows that Snape does not like Harry and that Harry's going to kind of be influenced by this. And not just Harry, but everybody else, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the other Gryffindors. Snape clearly has a bias against Gryffindor and towards Slytherin. And, you know, he's greasy-haired, you know, sallow skin, hook nose. He looks like a bad guy. And he kind of is a bad guy. He's a bully. But he's not true evil like Quirrell is. And so Quirrell is able to sort of hide behind that with this facade of being sort of bumbling and inept and stuttering. You know, he sort of makes himself fade into the background. People don't worry about him because he seems so inept. Yeah, and then Harry kind of gets mad at himself because once he knows that it was Quirrell, he feels like, of course it was Quirrell. He met Quirrell in Diagon Alley the day that Gringotts was broken into, and he sort of convinced himself that Snape, because he was so personally mean to Harry, must be behind this whole thing. Mm. Um, But, you know, there is evidence looking back that Quirrell was the one. And speaking of things that Harry sort of wasn't paying attention to, as as someone who's an adult reading this, I think it's clear that like there would have been an investigation into all of the teachers after, you know, it was found that someone was trying to kill Harry during the Quidditch match. Right. And that, you know, the events of Halloween, I'm sure, were also investigated. So I think Harry is a little naive here to believe or maybe not even consider that Snape would have obviously been investigated both of those times and that it would have been either Dumbledore or McGonagall or maybe Snape himself, too, that was investigating and and trying to determine what happened and who was behind them. So Snape was obviously cleared of wrongdoing in both cases, at least to satisfy Dumbledore and McGonagall's investigation. So the idea that Harry somehow knows better than all the teachers in the school or that no one was sort of following up on any of these strange happenings is really naive. And I think it reflects on how he is really, he's just an 11-year-old kid, and he thinks that his detective work is like the best detective work that's going on here. Exactly. And that's kind of um, going off of what we talked about in the last chapter with McGonagall and, you know, why, you know, the kids think that they know more than McGonagall and she's kind of like, you don't know how to fight, um, you know, all these obstacles. And at the same time, I think it also goes to the opposite point that we talked about, whereas like McGonagall and Dumbledore and the administration maybe need to give the kids a little bit more credit. And maybe, you know, if there is this investigation, kind of explain more because 
if I were Harry and someone had tried to kill me and then nobody really talked to me about it afterwards, that would be weird. (laughs) You know, you would think that Dumbledore or someone would be like, hey, sorry, someone tried to kill you. Like, we are figuring out who it was and this is the investigation we've done. You know, even like actual crimes in the real world. Like, people tell kids something about it. So I think that there's, again, a kind of lack of communication here and assumptions made by a lot of people. For sure. I think as we talked about in the Quidditch chapter, like, that was attempted murder and you would think that there would have been a criminal investigation going on like from the law enforcement people but instead probably what happened was like there was a uh, an internal investigation within hogwarts but you're right like they never talked to harry about it they never interviewed him or any of the other like witnesses so yeah it would have been way better to like have him in on the loop for all this stuff and it would have made him feel like he was being heard too which is you know the fact that he didn't feel like he was being heard and that people weren't taking his concerns seriously is what eventually drove him to act so rashly at the end here. But as we're going to get to, I think Dumbledore maybe gives him a little bit too much credit. And we'll talk about the pros and cons of that whole thing in a bit. <laughs> so we'll be talking a lot more about this in the future, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, how this encounter with Voldemort, this first encounter with Voldemort, at least in Harry's, you know, real memory, Um, compares to those that we'll see in later books. Um, So the basic point that I think is important to state is that, you know, every single time Harry encounters Voldemort, usually at the end of a book, he has to navigate a series of obstacles or challenges first. So, you know, book one, he just went through all these protective spells and rooms. Um, Book two, there's the Chamber of Secrets itself. Book three, he goes through the Shrieking Shack, the Whomping Willow, all that stuff. Um, Book four, there's the maze. Book five, they go through the Ministry of Magic, Department of Mysteries, all these rooms. And then um, book seven, so book six, he doesn't meet Voldemort, but in book seven, um, there's the Forbidden Forest and that whole scene. So it's kind of this pattern that we come to expect as the books go on is that, you know, Harry will kind of go through a literal or figurative maze Mm -hmm. and get to Voldemort at the end for the final sort of encounter. Yeah, and it is sort of like a classical literature move here to sort of have the hero go through a series of obstacles and then at the end, waiting for them is the final encounter. And it's a very useful thematic device and a plot device here. I mean, it's showing how Harry is always given the option to turn back. He's always given a fair shake of saying, like, you can walk away, but he never does. And that's what makes him such a compelling protagonist, I think. And also each time he succeeds in making it through all of the challenges and getting to the end, with help from his friends and allies, which is very important. Right. And as it is in every book, you know, it's a combination of kind of luck and just circumstances and quick thinking that really saves Harry. Um, He reacts very instinctively and it seems like he gets by, you know, on the skin of his teeth most of the time. Um, And that's what we see happens here in him succeeding against Quirrell and Voldemort. Yeah, he sort of, I mean, it even says in the text, it's like he reaches up instinctively to block Quirrell's spell and mm-hmm. he just like grabs his face and then he realizes that like it's burning quirrell he like he didn't know that was going to happen he was just trying to like get up in this guy's grill but yeah. like it ended up working and i mean i think that even though that kind of seems you know too lucky a lot of the times i think it's kind of the only way that especially when he's younger that he can defend himself is through luck because he's not a skilled lizard at this point he's barely learned any magic so it's not like he can fight Yeah, Um, he's skinny and scrawny, you know, if he's never really been one to stand up to bullies, he usually runs away. So, like, his instinct is usually to run or to, like, react reflexively. 
This chapter is interesting because the first half is really the encounter with Quirrell and Voldemort, and then the second half is all about kind of the hospital wing and this mainly this conversation with Dumbledore. So I think we hear a lot about um, Dumbledore as a person and kind of his relationship with Harry in this chapter, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, so we find out that Dumbledore knows about the prophecy at this point, although he does not tell Harry. And like Hermione says about giving him the invisibility cloak, this is kind of the beginning of this sketchy, like, manipulation using of Harry um, that Dumbledore does throughout his entire time at Hogwarts and throughout the whole series. And I think it's interesting to think about Ron and Hermione's attitudes towards Dumbledore's choices. As, as Harry discusses with Ron and Hermione, he, he sort of comes to the conclusion that Dumbledore wanted him to confront Quirrell and Voldemort in this instance. Because he realizes Dumbledore didn't reprimand me for finding the mirror. He explained how it worked. He sent me the invisibility cloak. It's almost like he wanted me to go out and find my destiny if I wanted to confront it. And so when he tells Ron and Hermione this, they react really differently. Ron basically reacts with this combination of awe and confusion. And he says he sort of always knew Dumbledore was off his rocker. <laughs> Whereas Hermione, I think, reacts legitimately with indignation, saying that it was really dangerous of Dumbledore to do that. And sort of... So risky. Yeah, very risky. I mean, as we've discussed earlier, Dumbledore leaves an awful lot up to chance. And his timely arrival at the end of the encounter here was really perfectly timed. If he had arrived any later, Quirrell would have been able to finish Harry off no problem. That's the end of the series right there. <laughs> so personally, I side with Hermione here because Harry's only 11 and 11 year olds, as we keep saying, they rarely make good choices when there's a lot of emotion involved. Harry is clearly still very torn up about his parents. He has this insatiable drive for revenge and, and sort of justice against Voldemort. He's always going to want to confront him. And Dumbledore basically enables him to do that in a very, very, very dangerous way that I don't think anyone else would have approved of. So... You're right. It is this really odd manipulation pattern that we're getting into here. Um, and it will only get worse, really. it's going to get way worse. And I think the worst part is that Dumbledore will manipulate him, but without giving him any of the information that he needs to succeed, really. Right. Like like explaining to him the nature of the prophecy, the nature of Lily's charm that protects him, the nature of, of his necessary relationship with the Dursleys and how he needs to continue to live there. All this stuff would be really good for Harry to know and to understand. And it would give him the tools that he needs to sort of make his peace with it. And Harry really has shown that he is mature enough to handle it. Exactly. And it's frustrating to think like, okay, so Dumbledore, you think that Harry's mature enough to go face Voldemort literally by himself, but you don't think he's mature enough to hear about, you know, things like why he has to stay the Dursleys yeah. and things that would probably give him a difficult, but also, you know, better mindset in some ways going forward. You know, I just had a horrible thought and I don't think that this is true, but I, I just want to put this out there and our listeners can sort of decide whether they like this or not. Dumbledore believes that Voldemort will eventually have to kill Harry in order for Voldemort to become vulnerable because he thinks that Harry is a horcrux, correct? Do you think he thinks that at this point that Harry's a horcrux? I think he has a suspicion, at least a very strong one. My thought that I just had is, what if Dumbledore is intentionally putting Harry into situations where he might be killed by Voldemort? So that part of Voldemort will die. Yeah. What if Dumbledore is basically saying, like, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to take Voldemort down, even putting this 11-year-old kid in harm's way. 
as long as it, it accomplishes my goals. Maybe Dumbledore is also sort of this, like, the ends justify the means kind of thing in this circumstance. Well, I think there's a lot to talk about in the future with that uh, specific point. So that's a dark but very interesting um, right. thought around Dumbledore. Well, we'll table that for now. But I think we have a lot else to talk about. So um, Harry does ask a lot of questions in this chapter that don't get answered properly. And there's at least one instance where Dumbledore outright lies, which I want to get into here. So when Harry asks why Snape hates him so much, um, Dumbledore basically says that Snape and James, Harry's father, were... Um, school enemies and then James saved Severus's life and that that's why Severus can't stand the sight of Harry because he's a reminder of his debt to James a person that he hated and so that's why Snape hates him so much right so Dumbledore is clearly outright lying he definitely knows about Lily and why Snape is really trying to protect Harry I guess Dumbledore probably feels it's not his place to reveal this personal fact about Snape to Harry um and I mean, the explanation doesn't really make sense beyond the surface related to James, because if Snape just hated Harry's dad, why does he hate Harry himself so much? You know, they look alike, but they're not the same person. And the truth is just that Harry's a visual reminder to Snape that Lily loved someone else, which was James, and that she's now gone forever because Snape made some bad choices in the past. Right. So it makes you, it does make you wonder why Dumbledore felt the need to lie here. I mean, it's not like... 100% bald-faced lie. It has some truth to it, but it's like maybe it's a just, lie of om- yeah. omission, really. Maybe you just felt like it was too much. Yeah, I, I think probably Dumbledore feels a good deal of loyalty to Snape mm-hmm. and probably feels like it won't hurt Harry any to not tell him this this particular very, very personal fact about Snape. And it would hurt Snape a lot for Harry to know. So Yeah, and it's one of those lies where you can tell yourself you're not really lying because it's technically true that... Uh, Snape hated James, but Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. It's just not the complete explanation, and it's not even close, really. So another major point about this conversation is that um, the protection, um, which is Lily's sacrifice, is described really for the first time, that Harry's mother's love is what's protecting him. I mean, it's not really described, it's just kind of mentioned out there. And so that's (laughs) as a huge, you know, has a huge significance for the book, because, you know, Voldemort is again thwarted by this powerful magic that he doesn't understand, And once he does finally understand this protection and attempts to, you know, kind of get around it by using Harry's blood in the fourth book, he ends up orchestrating his own demise by accident. Um, So that's what we know eventually happens. But Dumbledore, again, his unwillingness to tell Harry something like this, really important, related to this protection and why Voldemort attacked him and, you know, all that stuff, it just adds to Harry's confusion and missteps over the next few years yeah harry's just going to continue to feel lost and confused and upset because he doesn't understand so much about his fate and what is driving him and voldemort together all the time and and especially i think as it pertains to the dursleys harry has to keep going back to the dursleys every summer and live with them and all he hears is that he has to do it but he never hears why or why it's important yeah, and that especially seems like something that... It's cruel. Yeah, I mean, he, Dumbledore should tell him. Yeah, Dumbledore should tell him at least, like, why this is important to do. And Harry might argue at first, but he might eventually realize, like, yeah, it is important. It's for my own protection, etc., etc. So I think he would understand. And again, Harry has shown remarkable maturity for someone his age. I think Dumbledore, for all of his wisdom, really isn't putting enough stock in Harry's character to trust him with this information. 
So I think the next salient point in this discussion is talking about Nicolas Flamel and how he's sort of allowed the Philosopher's Stone to be destroyed Mm -hmm. for the betterment of wizard society in general. And we'll talk about why that's true. And it gives us a really good opportunity to contrast methods of achieving eternal life, um, of which we know of several from the books, and why this one really is an acceptable attitude and the other one isn't. So Voldemort uses a dark magic involving murder and horcruxes and soul splitting to achieve an existence which is, by all accounts, worse than death. It's a, it's a life without love or friendship or connections, um, without remorse, and without really a lot of the emotions that make us people. And it's because he fears death above all other things. And so, as we've said, he sees no moral dilemma about using any means to this end. He doesn't want to be reliant on something like the elixir of life or the deathly hallows for his eternal life. He wants to be self-sufficient. Whereas Nicholas Fumel uses a well-kept secret of magical alchemy to achieve an eternal life without damaging himself in any way, and he too is probably afraid of death. But importantly, he agrees to give up this eternal life for the safety of everyone else, because he realizes that as long as the Philosopher's Stone exists, there will always be people greedy enough or scared of death enough to kill other people to get it. Right, and I think that's really interesting when we talk about, um, you know, Dumbledore's plan and Dumbledore's final sort of task for Harry related to getting the Philosopher's Stone. So Dumbledore puts a spell on the mirror that will only allow someone who wants to find the stone but not use it for eternal life will be able to retrieve it from the mirror like we see Harry do. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, that is kind of what Flamel is doing here. I mean, he is using... He is using the stone for eternal life, and it's he's not hurting anyone with it. It's, you know, for himself and his wife. But when Dumbledore speaks to him and they decide that the stone needs to be destroyed so that he will have to die, but that Voldemort won't be able to get it anymore, um, you know, he does it because he knows that it's for the greater good, but in a good way <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think he accepts... In a sense, he accepts his own mortality as being a part of life, right? Whereas Voldemort absolutely refuses to accept his own mortality as a part of life. And I think this is really an important point that Voldemort is so damaged by all of his choices here. You know, all of his soul splitting and killing innocents, tainting his soul with unicorn's blood. Even if he had drank the elixir of life from the Philosopher's Stone, he could never have restored himself to a complete soul. Mm-hmm. He would have a body, but he would still be so damaged. So it's a very different situation here. And speaking of, I think it's important to just make this connection right now, because this is the first time we're sort of seeing it, that even though we don't know about things like Horcruxes or the specifics of how Voldemort is appearing to survive his own death several times now, we do have some clues. It seems to be related to Harry's scar and Harry himself somehow, because we've seen Harry's scar hurts really badly Harry himself seems to be sort of a a protective charm against Voldemort. So, I mean, we don't really know the specifics yet at this point in the series, but um, it's a clue that likely um, Rowling had planned this all from the beginning when she started writing the series in 1990, which is kind of cool. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think she had planned out mostly everything. We just found out today that she actually wrote the epilogue in 1990, which is when Mm -hmm. she first began the series. So I think... You know, she had a lot planned out, and it is interesting to be reading it this time and analyzing it, thinking about those clues. 
So Dumbledore is obviously a very quotable, wise person. And mm-hmm. one of his most famous quotes is from this chapter. Um, he says, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. So this kind of has a deeper meaning in the series in general. So it describes the difference in attitudes between Voldemort and those against him. So, you know, similar to what we've just been talking about, Harry and his allies have shown their willingness to die fighting Voldemort or willingness in general to protect the good in the world and to destroy the evil, which is Voldemort. So as we learn later, the master of death is one who is prepared to meet death on their own terms. And running from death does not let you avoid it for long. We learn that related to the Deathly Hallows. And this distinction is why Dumbledore admires Harry so much already, because he's already shown that he's willing to die. He thinks he's going to die when he Mm -hmm. goes into the final room, and especially when he sees Voldemort and Quirrell. But he's kind of showing himself already at 11 to be better than Voldemort in this way. Mm -hmm. He's stronger. Yeah, and, and as Dumbledore says, I think in King's Cross, he said, you know, I always knew that you were the better man. Mm-hmm. And after the events of Goblet of Fire, um, when Harry confronts Voldemort again, without fear of death, that that the Priory Incantatum broke upon Voldemort and not Harry because Harry was the stronger wizard. Because Harry was not afraid, and Voldemort was. And everything Voldemort does is because of fear, and everything mm-hmm. Harry does is against that and that bravery of Gryffindor I think sometimes we think of it in kind of a cocky way but I think that really in this case it comes out in the strongest of possible ways as bravery is the opposite of fear and evil which is Voldemort yeah and if Harry Potter is afraid of one thing it's fear we see this in in his own Boggart is a dementor Mm -hmm. which is a representation of fear itself right so that, that really strikes at the heart of why Harry is considered the better man, the stronger wizard. So in the finale of this chapter, it's very exciting. We think that Slytherin's going to win the House Cup, but Gryffindor wins at the end because <laughs> Dumbledore gives extra points to all of the trio and to Neville as well. So mm-hmm. just quickly touching on how this affects their characters, um, we see Ron, for the first time in his life, actually overshadows his brothers quickly. Um, Percy brags about Ron, and Fred and George seem proud. Um, and then we have Hermione, who is embarrassed but clearly is pleased. And Neville, as we've talked about, is at the end, beginning and end of this book, is again tied with the trio. He's as important. And I think that's been kind of one of my biggest takeaways from this whole book is Mm -hmm. that, you know, Neville's up there from the beginning. And he, we've talked about how it's kind of just by chance that he is not tied with the trio from the whole book. But really here, you know, Dumbledore showing, I value this bravery and, you know, standing up to your friends and all that stuff. And so by book seven, he's a really heroic figure, basically on par with the trio. And I think that that's really cool that we see this from the very beginning. Yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of readers, their first time through the books, I know I felt like this when I was very young reading through the books. The first time through, you, you sort of think of Neville as sort of a comic relief character. He's sort of a, a clown-like, sad clown-like character. You know, he sort of gets bullied and then he stands up for himself, but he gets put down again and it's kind of funny in a sad sort of way. And then he gets rewarded at the end of the book and you think, oh, that's really, it's a great moment for him. It's sort of, you know, it's a good full circle kind of thing. But you think it's kind of a fluke. 
that he was so brave. The in consolation prize kind of thing. Yeah. 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 But then, like, as the books go on, and especially into Order of the Phoenix, he really grows up into his own person and into his own sort of persona. He really starts standing up in a big way. He fights Death Eaters. And, like, he gets beaten up and bloodied, but he keeps fighting, even when everybody else has stopped. And then by book seven, he really is a hero, like one of the biggest, if not the biggest. His bravery outshines just about everybody else in the Battle of Hogwarts. And he is very, very far flung from the Neville that we see in book one. So it's just a really wonderful transformation that we get to see start to happen in this in this chapter and in this moment. So I love Neville, and I think that I love Neville even more after this read-through of the first book because I see how important he is and how integral he is to the whole series starting from year one and then the final moment of the book really ends on a positive note and we see harry you know he has to go back to the dursleys i think especially ron and hermione are sort of appalled at his family and and what his family life is likely like based on how they act in public but harry seems positive about the whole thing he's like they don't know that i'm not allowed to use magic outside of school so (laughs) i'm gonna have a lot of fun and hopefully things are looking up and he's very optimistic about the whole thing i think he's gained a lot of self-confidence and belief in himself and it's a really great note to end on well i think that wraps it up for book one so thank you all for listening to the harry podcast and the philosopher's stone we hope you've enjoyed our journey through season one of the podcast and we have a special announcement to make which is that we have a new website up as of the release of this episode it is located at www.theharrypodcast.com. So please go check it out. You can also view, download, and listen to our podcast through the Apple Podcast app or directly from our website. Feel free to email us at harrypodcast7 at gmail.com or our new contact email, contact at theharrypodcast.com with any questions or comments you have. And stay tuned for next time when we begin Season 2, Harry Podcast and the Chamber of Secrets. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next season on the Harry Podcast. Knox.